Section 3 of G.K. Chesterton in The British Review. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. G.K. Chesterton in the British Review by G.K. Chesterton. The Silence of Journalists. Modern journalism, as I pointed out last month, is, in its nature, fastidious and selective, especially the sort of journalism generally thought vulgar and full of license. The yellow press is as artificial a work of art as the yellow book, and as artistic. And the artistic effect it aims at is not music, but silence. If anyone is so paradoxical as to say there can be no such thing as a noisy silence, I can only refer him to the descriptions of the silence in nature as it is described in numberless novels and poems, a silence broken only by the crash of waves or the bellowing of bulls or the distant trumpeting of elephants or any other factor needed for complete silence. In any case, it is very possible to be verbally talkative while being spiritually silent. A conjurer while doing his patter, is verbally talkative, though spiritually silent. His main purpose is to make men ignore things, and the main purpose of the modern newspaper is to make men ignore things. I mean that the object is to make men ignorant, ignorant of something important, while they are interested and even learned in some things entirely trivial. The rabbits come out of the hat because we look at the hat, and not at the hands. The conjurer is silent, though he is talking all the time. The same description applies precisely to the modern journalist. It is very difficult indeed to define the nature of this distraction, to remember all the patter that has pleased us at one time or another. It is very much more difficult to analyze the moral element that makes such things possible. Those of us who have had the pleasure of arguing with an intellectual modern lady have probably been puzzled to name the nameless quality of sex by which she seemed to be outside the law as well as inside it. Broadly, you might say that she not only refuses to listen to what you say, but she refuses to listen to what she says. But indeed, it is more subtle than this. It is a kind of brilliant blindness, a kind of agile obstinacy, that is not at all appropriate to the discussion of any definite point of truth. In the last analysis, it can best be compared with the old legal dilemma about refusing to plead. I do not for a moment suggest that these ladies should have heavy weights placed on their chests until they do plead, though whether I suggest it or not, my suffragette friends will say I did. One of them recently declared, as I understand the declaration, that I thought no young lady could avoid my besieging attentions or resist my marvelous fascinations unless she could brandish the terrible instrument called a vote. But I touch on this elusive quality only because it is the one parallel I can suggest to the singular spirit that has taken hold of the modern press. The press still goes in, somewhat cautiously, for what it calls correspondence. I wish it would go in for another and more essential quality, which I might call respondence. I mean the quality that would instinctively react upon any protest made against it. 
timing the impulse to reply, as men do when they are rung up on the telephone or struck smartly on the tip of the nose. I know nothing of psychology or medicine, but I think there must be a word for the responsive faculties of the brain and body, those beautiful faculties that make us hit at the moment the man who has hurt us, instead of going on progressive principles and hitting somebody a long time afterwards who has never hurt us at all. Now, in that quality, whether we call it sensibility or sense, whether we call it being spiteful or being spirited, whether we call it pride or self-examination, whether we call it justice or revenge, all this is apparently impossible to the modern newspaper. It cannot hit back when it is hit. It cannot listen or reason or even to unreason. It cannot answer the plainest question if it is plainly asked. The old Victorian idea was that England was free because anybody could write a letter to the Times. But anybody cannot. The great newspapers sort and sift their letters more carefully every day. Now, in this matter, the common advertisements on the hoardings are much more honest than the daily papers. The advertisers used to say, don't look at this, obviously meaning that we should look at it. But the modern journalist goes a step beyond this imposture and misleading of the public. He says, do look at this because he wants you not to look at something else. I give an example in passing out of the events that have been going on before us. A recently elected member of parliament, a most excellent man in private life, was photographed in the press in some five or fifteen or five hundred different attitudes, and was enforced and reinforced with perpetual headlines saying, Home rule the issue. Thus, if in one snapshot he was lifting both hands, it was in sheer horror at home rule. If he was lifting one hand, it was in solemn warning against home rule. If he was giving his hands a rest, he was simply paralyzed by the distinct prospect of home rule. If he had been snapshotted in the act of hitting the table, which many orators have done, no doubt he would be hitting home rule. Or, if he had been snapshotted in the act of falling under the table, which many orators have also done, he would be sinking under the unendurable catastrophe of home rule. I should think it very probable, since the man was a sensible man, I know him but slightly, that he talked about more important things, or, at least, things more important for Englishmen. But the essence of the truth is this, that the journalists who wrote those words, home rule the issue, cared less about Ireland than I do, and therefore infinitely less than any Irishman must. Home rule the issue, translated into plain English, simply meant Marconi, not the issue. And that candidate, who was photographed in all those attitudes, had actually promised his home rule opponent not to mention an Italian surname. In my last article, I pointed out that modern journalism is an aristocratic thing. Its object is not to include all kinds, but rather to exclude them. In this article, I wish to point out that its object is not to excite the public, but rather to soothe the public. This is, of course, the explanation of the unintelligible nonsense that appears in so large a part of the press. If you say, hey diddle diddle, as a lullaby, it will, 
very probably, lull. If you say, hey diddle diddle, as the last news from the war or the stock exchange, it will disappoint many. Hey diddle diddle means rather more than home rule the issue, for any man with the faintest patriotic feeling about the present state of purely English politics. But whichever form the words we happen to prefer, they are both meant for lullabies. Now, the essential fact about journalism nowadays is that it never by any chance publishes anything that could possibly wake people up. One paper did indeed invent a massacre in China that never happened. But then, it was in China, and the typical modern journal is mistress of herself, though China fall. But the general journalistic effort, in the existing state of affairs, is to underrate the interest of what is going on. Anyone who has been at an election, or a battle, or even at the maneuvers, knows how much more human is the reality than the report. So all modern politics is a sham fight, but even a sham fight is more genuine than a sham report of a sham fight. The lie that knows itself to be a lie is very nearly the truth. Thus, the very cynicism, which is now the main mark of the governing class, makes it a little livelier than it is made in the pomposities of the press. Even statesmen are not such fools as they look, in newspaper portraits especially, and even Westminster is not so gray as it is painted. It should be noted that to this supreme necessity of tact and the soothing of souls, the journalist will sacrifice even journalism. He would rather make a story totally unintelligible than make it too exciting. It is often asked in a supercilious manner by those who wish to teach humanity but refuse to learn from it why the reading public rushes for the news of murders and such practical matters, and why the plain man in a tavern or a tram would rather talk about Dr. Crippen than Dr. Clifford. The light-minded, among whom I will never be numbered, may be content to reply that Dr. Crippen is the more interesting of the two. But indeed, there is a better answer, or at least a more delicate one. One reason, at least, while the average man reads the news of a murder trial, such as the Crippen case, with some care and reflection, is this, that it is one of the very few forms of news which is told sufficiently truthfully for him to be able to make head or tail of it. If we still had such an occasion as a state trial, that is, if an important man could be impeached nowadays for treason or sedition or sorcery or blasphemy, no doubt most of our journalists would be as confused and as confusing as they were over the Marconi Committee. But nowadays, all that the old-fashioned sentimentalist felt about the impossibility of laying his hand upon a lady, the modern journalist feels about laying it on a gentleman. So democratic is the age that I gravely doubt whether Lord Mohun or the Marquise de Brinvilliers would now be brought to trial at all. But the plutocracy that controls our press has no particular reason for suppressing what happened between Crippen and his unhappy wife. For the reader of the newspaper, therefore, things became, for the first time, clear and connected in the printed page. Reality almost becomes as sane and credible as romance. When a rich man is concerned, the story is like a three-volume novel, of which we have only the second volume. Its only resemblance to Melchizedek is in being without beginning or end. 
Or it is like a novel I once read by one of our wealthiest and most prolific novelists, in which the name of the heroine was calmly altered in the middle of the book. But the story of Crippen, though a horrible story, was a story, and the clear recounting of it was a work far more worthy of the dignity of the human intellect than the average shuffling leading article or truncated foreign news. It is true that this irrational secrecy, like all irrational things, sometimes recoils on itself and produces effects opposite to those which it perhaps intends. This can be curiously noted in the case which is most difficult to discuss, the question of decorum and reticence in certain dangerous elements of life. I should say that most of the journalists who deal with divorce or the crime passional probably try to make the topic decent. But their test of decency seems to me very strange. They seem to think that no harm can be done by 40 or 50 material details of criminality so long as they do not accuse the criminal of his crime. These people are always talking of the effect upon the young. I think most of us who have been young will agree that no great harm would have been done to us by the mention of some monstrosity by its old, plain Latin or legal name, which we should not only not understand, but not specially want to understand. But great harm might have been done to us by leaving us to get hideous hints out of a senseless and brainless story and wonder what deviltry might be done with a door key and a cab stand or with a policeman and a postcard. But compare with a case like that of Crippen, the comparatively poor man who is almost alone punished in our community, any case in which the political passions of any ruling groups are concerned. Compare the accounts we got of the murder charge against Crippen with the accounts we got of the murder charge against Bayliss. The matter is repulsive, but relevant. In the Crippen case, everything turned on a minute scar, of which we were given the most minute details, rightly or wrongly, and which we were expected to study through every loathsome transfiguration of surgery or putrefaction, though it was not inflicted by the murderer, but was only an indirect piece of evidence against him. In the case of the poor boy at Kiev, there were something like thirty separate scars, all of which were inflicted by the murderer, whoever he was, and the number and position of which were not the chief point, but really the only point in the whole business. Yet most of the English papers, particularly those theoretically dedicated to the worship of liberty, said next door to nothing about the chief point. We heard from time to time that something had been contradicted, something we had never heard said. We heard that a German doctor, whom we did not know, had a low opinion of a Russian doctor whom we had not been allowed to hear of. The correspondents could not tell a truth on Tuesday without practically admitting that they had suppressed a truth on Monday. They could not even rejoice in the Russian jury's justice without virtually confessing their own past injustice. All sorts of weird motives were attributed to the jury that acquitted the man, except indeed the quaint thought, which I entertain, that they acquitted Bayliss because he was innocent. But if twelve British pressmen had been as enlightened and civilized as those twelve peasants, we might have opened a new world, might have really understood Israel, or understood Russia. As it is, we were hurriedly told that there was no such thing as ritual murder, the one thing that was not proved. The rest was silence.
and the creation of a silence is the aim of journalism. End of section three.